Notice anything different? That's right. No ad. Which means this space is available. So if you have a company or brand or product or anything really that you'd love to promote on 30 Pop, this is your chance. Just shoot me an email at the link in the show notes and I'll give you all the relevant details. Now, on to 30 Pop. Hi, may I speak to Luke, please? Aaron. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Hey, okay, so it's Thanksgiving 1991, right? Yes. You're there in your head? I remember it like it was yesterday. Okay, I've got two questions for you. First, what is the one item that you were most excited to eat at Thanksgiving 1991? Like something that you're still nostalgic about today. Oh, that I'm... I really like dipping a roll in gravy. Yeah. (laughs) That is not what I was expecting. (laughs) <laughs> I also didn't expect it to sound so much like a euphemism. On oh, you surely you expected that. Okay, second question. <laughs> what family member were you most excited to see at Thanksgiving? <laughs> what family member was I most in 91? Mm. I really enjoyed hanging out with my cousins and doing fun things. I remember one Thanksgiving, we were raking up all the leaves. I have this video, this home video of me complaining that we still have so many leaves to rake up. And I had this like really thick accent. My dad's videotaping me and I'm going, don't you think that's enough leaves? And my cousin goes, no, we got to get all these. And I go, all of them. And I turn and look at my dad and I go, we got to get all these dad. Stupid. This is the first time I've ever thought, like, I'm so glad I didn't know him as a kid. (laughs) Oh, man. That's awesome. Hey, man. Thanks so much. I hope that you get to dip some rolls in gravy this week, however you want to interpret that. Yeah. Oh, me too, man. I hope I do too. In more ways than one. I'll see (laughs) you. All right. See you. From Mill U Media Group, this is 30 Pop, a weekly peek back at the music movies, sports, fashion, politics, and news from 30 years ago. I'm your host, Luke Braun. This is Season 3, Episode 41, Commercials, Cartoons, and the Hammerhead. Today we're looking back at the week that ended Saturday, November 23rd, 1991. Welcome, friends, to another week's worth of 1991 nostalgia. We have so few of these weeks remaining before we dive into 1992, so I'm so thrilled to have you with me again for this episode. It's sure to be a fun one, so let's waste no time. We'll get right into it. On November 17, 1991, television history was made by the Fox Network when, during an episode of their still very new sitcom, Herman's Head, for the first time ever on network television, before an estimated audience of about 7 million people, they aired a commercial for condoms, Trojan brand condoms specifically. This, while the world was still reeling from the news of NBA superstar Magic Johnson's retirement 10 days earlier after contracting HIV. Fox made the decision just four days after that announcement to begin accepting condom ads related to STIs, and within a few days, both CBS and NBC began reconsidering their long-held policies against such ads. There were several cable networks, including MTV, that had long since aired commercials for condoms in regular rotation. 
But this was brand new for network television. Predictably, hyper-conservative religious groups were outraged, but on the whole, viewers didn't mind one bit. Fox didn't receive a single viewer complaint. Granted, there was no Twitter back then, so complaining required time and postage, but still, this marked a definite shift in the public attitude towards sexuality and censorship. Not to be outdone in the controversy department, CBS did something far more offensive than air a condom commercial just a few days later on November 22nd, when, after eight seasons, they put an end to the long-running Saturday morning staple, Muppet Babies. Everything all right in here? Yes, Nanny. At this point, I was 12 years and one week old, and definitely outgrowing non-violent animated programming, so I doubt I was still watching Muppet Babies, but I had certainly enjoyed the show for much of its time on the air. And even looking back, I can remember how very original the concept was. The whole series took place in a nursery, where these weird little anthropomorphic animal puppet children were left unsupervised for a significant portion of every day to explore their imaginations, which typically involved their being incorporated into licensed live-action footage and scenes from popular movies like Star Wars and Indiana Jones. The only adult we ever saw with any consistency was a caretaker named Nanny, whose relationship to the Muppet Babies is never actually explained, and who we only ever see from about the waist down. Come to think of it, this nursery may exist in an orphanage, because the Muppet Babies' parents are never really mentioned at all. Who knows? Anyway, one fun fact I learned while prepping this episode. The voice of Animal, the wild, feral, drumming monster baby in the series, was originally voiced by Howie Mandel of Deal or No Deal and America's Got Talent fame. Mandel lasted two seasons on the show before being replaced for the rest of the series by Dave Coulier, best known as Uncle Joey Gladstone from Full House. Who knew? As long as we're talking about animation, there were a couple of really great animated films that released in theaters this week in 1991, neither of which, surprisingly, topped the box office. First up, the now-beloved, although initially only moderately well-received, sequel to a 1986 classic, an American tale, Fievel Goes West. Once upon a time, a little mouse made a big journey. But got lost. Along the way. He found a land of enchantment. A land of new beginnings. What's that over there? Well, that is more America. Can we go see it? Someday you will come true. Now someday is today. As Steven Spielberg presents An American Tale, Fievel Goes West. 
the further adventures of the Mouskowitz family. As they meet old friends. Get me out of here! Ah! Uh, Tiger! And new enemies. What do we have here? It appears to be a young pioneer. From the mean streets of New York City. I see you're missing an eye, Pilgrim. That's right, I'm talking to you. To the wide open spaces where a young mouse can stand tall. It's too tough, kid. Get out while you still can. Where dreams can come true. Someday I'll be a big star. Where's the girl you left behind? She's waiting for my sister. And a cowardly cat can get a new start as... A dog. A dog? A dog. Come on, Tiger, we're rooting for you. With the voice talents of Dom DeLuise. Cat got your tongue? Amy Irving. After all, we'll always have the Bronx. John Lovitz. You place your last hand, Shula. I got seven more. John Cleese. Let the saliva flow! And Jimmy Stewart. You want to intimidate someone, give them the lazy eye. Coming from Steven Spielberg, an American tale, Fievel Goes West. This movie was almost exactly half as successful commercially as its predecessor, An American Tale, bringing in a little over $20 million domestically and $40 million worldwide. While Steven Spielberg's short-lived animation studio, Amblimation, had high hopes for the film, they apparently didn't factor in the fact that the kids who loved the original, and who may still get a little misty-eyed to this day when they hear that cracky-voiced little mouse in the great big hat sing the words, Somewhere Out There, were five years older by 1991 and had, for a season, outgrown Fievel Mouskowitz and his family. They also didn't factor in Spielberg's inability to really be involved with either the production or promotion of the film, as he was gearing up for the release of Hook, which I'm so excited to revisit in just a couple weeks. The last and perhaps greatest factor, which I know they did consider, but upon which they really shouldn't have gambled, was the competition they'd be up against on their opening weekend. Although they'd previously had two films that opened on the same day as Disney animated features, in each case of which, Amblimation had come out on top, they'd never had competition quite like this. One of, if not the single greatest Disney animated feature of all time, Beauty and the Beast. Walt Disney Pictures presents its all-new 30th full-length animated motion picture. Is anyone here? Mama, there's a girl in the castle. A girl! The classic story of Beauty and the Beast. He was a lonely beast, cursed by a mysterious spell. And she was the beautiful young girl who could set him and his kingdom free. She's the one! She has come to break the spell! They were two complete opposites. I don't want to have anything to do with him. She is being so difficult. Until something wonderful happened. Something sweet. Straighten up. And almost kind. Show me the smile. But he was mean and he was coarse and unrefined. And now he's dear. You look so... And so unsure. I wonder why I didn't see it there before. It's a story filled with fun. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I beg your pardon. Adventure. Sacre bleu. Invaders. 
and dozens of wonderful new Disney characters. Keep it down. Featuring six new songs from the Academy Award-winning composer and lyricist of The Little Mermaid. This holiday season, share the fun, the magic, and the music of an entertainment event you'll never forget. Disney's Beauty and the Beast. Now, although this never wound up being number one at the box office, it was beyond successful. This was the first animated feature to ever be nominated for the Oscar for Best Picture, and would remain the only one for nearly 20 years, until Pixar's Up was nominated in 2010. Although Beauty and the Beast ultimately lost to The Silence of the Lambs, they did win the Golden Globe in that same category, which is really impressive in light of all that released in 1991. The movie cost about $25 million to produce, which I have to believe was used pretty efficiently considering how honestly stunning the animation was and remains today. And it made back well over $200 million at the box office. It became easily one of the most valuable properties Disney owned at the time, and if I had to guess, probably still ranks relatively high despite the company now owning Marvel, Lucasfilm, ESPN, 20th Century Fox, and, well, basically everything. Bell remains one of their most universally beloved characters. And I don't mean to brag, but I've actually seen her in person a few times on trips to Walt Disney World. In fact, I even met her once. I'm not saying we're like best friends or anything, but I mean, but if you told me she said that, I would believe you. I've actually met Gaston too, and let me just say he is no less arrogant today than he was in 1991. Anyway, The movie that did come in first place at the box office this week in 1991 was the first film adaptation of the 1964 TV adaptation of a series of single-panel comic strips from The New Yorker by cartoonist Charles Adams that began in 1938, starring Angelica Houston, Raul Julia, Christopher Lloyd, and young Christina Ricci, and directed by Barry Sonnenfeld, The Adams Family. Showtime! I know, darling. Children, put down that antenna. Uncle Festa, may I have the salt? What do we say? Now. Unhappy, darling. Oh, yes. Yes, completely. There's lots to learn. Look, children. Scares. Children. What are you doing? I'm going to electrocute him. I said no. Please? Oh, all right. Don't torture yourself, Gomez. That's my job. buy a box of my delicious Girl Scout cookies. Are they made from real Girl Scouts? Remarkably, this movie was, like, really, really successful. It was nominated for Oscars, Golden Globes, and even won Favorite Movie at the 1992 Kids' Choice Awards. But that's not the only award they received. 
Continuing his spiral into irrelevance, Hammer, formerly known as MC Hammer, won a Golden Raspberry Award for the worst original song for the film's theme song, Adam's Groove. Congratulations to Hammer on the major award. No matter how terrible this song may have been, A, I loved it, and B, it wasn't nearly as bad as its music video, which opens with Hammer being decapitated in a guillotine by Wednesday and Pugsley Adams while begging for mercy. Dark. And continues with his disembodied head bouncing all over the Adams mansion rapping while his backup dancers, who were apparently also murdered, rise from and dance around their own graves. It was bizarre. And not in that charming Adams Family sort of way. Although, I'll admit, I don't remember thinking so back then. At just barely 12 years old, I'm sure I thought it was fun. But rewatching it today, at just barely 42 years old, it has not aged well at all. Unlike the rest of the Adams Family franchise, which is still thriving in 2021. In other music news this week in 1991, Garth Brooks still held the top spot on the Billboard 200 chart with his album, Rope in the Wind, and on the Hot Country chart with his cover of the Billy Joel song, Shameless. Public Enemy was still number one on the Hot Rap chart with their single, Can't Trust It. New to the top of the Hot R&B and Hip Hop chart was the Tracy Spencer song, Tender Kisses. This was the fourth single released off of Spencer's sophomore album, Make the Difference. It only held the number one spot for this one week, but it was Spencer's best-known song by a long shot, and it actually made a return to the collective pop culture consciousness a couple years later, in a very awkward scene from the TGIF sitcom Family Matters, in which the character, Eddie Winslow, sneaks into Spencer's hotel room disguised as a bellboy, and the two sing the song together as a duet. It makes a lot of sense and is completely realistic. Especially the part where Eddie's best friend, Waldo Geraldo Faldo, unexpectedly blasts through the high-rise window wearing a circus stuntman costume and cape after being shot out of a cannon on the street below. The 90s were a special time. The new number one song on the Hot 100 this week in 1991 was Michael Bolton's cover of the very heteronormative 1966 Percy Sledge song, when a man loves a woman. When a man 
There are a number of interesting things about this single. For one, this was the fifth version of the song to do well on the charts. Percy Sledge reached number one on both the Hot 100 and Hot R&B charts with his original release of the song. John Wesley Riles had a country version that charted in 1976, and Bette Midler had a top 40 hit with her version in 1980. In 1988, Australian rock singer Jimmy Barnes released a version that did really well on the Australian charts as well. Bolton's version was off his 1989 album, Time, Love, and Tenderness, which I always love to point out was the first CD my older brother Josh owned. But that also made this the last song fully recorded in the 1980s to reach number one on both the Hot 100 and adult contemporary charts. It was also the very last number one song under the old Billboard Hot 100 reporting system. 30 years ago this next week, Billboard shifted to a SoundScan-centric system rather than the sales and airplay-based system they'd always used. This wasn't a drastic change, but it was a change. With Bolton's version reaching number one, When a Man Loves a Woman became only the seventh song ever to reach number one on the Hot 100 by more than one artist. New to music store shelves 30 years ago this week were three albums I'd actually love to have more dedicated time to cover. First up was the platinum-selling debut album from young R&B star Tevin Campbell, T-E-V-I-N, which released on November 19th, just a week after Campbell's 15th birthday, and opened with his already very famous collaboration with music icon Prince, Round and Round. I was a big Tevin Campbell fan, especially with the release of his sophomore album a few years later. And I'm not exaggerating in any way when I say I'm not sure there's been a more gifted R&B vocalist in the last 30 years. He's not often recognized for the talent that he was, and presumably still is, because of some controversy he fell into towards the end of the decade. But in his day, he was often considered to be on the same level as the Queen, Whitney Houston, with regard to technical vocal ability. Now, I understand the impulse to reject that notion outright, but honestly, go listen to his entire catalog of music. He had a four and a half octave vocal range and incredible musical instincts. It's a shame that he fell out of the public eye the way he did because I'm confident we'd have another two full decades worth of amazing music otherwise. Also released on November 19th, 1991, was the unfortunately lackluster sophomore release from Wild Thing and Funky Cole Medina rapper Tone Loke. Cool Hand Loke. The album was pretty universally considered a disappointment by critics, especially when compared to his debut, Loked After Dark, which I'm confident is still making him money to this day. Last up was the Grammy Award-winning, nearly double-diamond-selling seventh studio album from Irish rock band U2, Octung Baby. Amazingly, this is one of the band's most successful albums and is considered by a number of critics to be one of the greatest albums ever recorded. Amazing, because the actual writing and recording process nearly ended the band altogether. The vibe changed, though, when they collaborated on the song, One, somewhat spontaneously. The mood shifted, they found some momentum, and they completed one of the albums that has since come to define their already otherwise illustrious careers. 
In 2011, they released a 20th anniversary reissue of the album, and now, again, this month, they released another 30th anniversary reissue. More on that record in just a couple weeks, when it debuts at number one on the Billboard 200 chart. In sports news this week in 1991, the world was wowed once again by undisputed heavyweight boxing champion Evander Holyfield, although not as wowed as they had hoped to be when he defeated journeyman Burt Cooper by technical knockout in a seven-round bout. They weren't as wild because the fight was originally supposed to be against Mike Tyson on November 8th for a record purse of $45 million. But because of a rib injury Tyson sustained in training, oh, and because he had been arrested and convicted of raping Desiree Washington, the fight was moved to November 23rd in Holyfield's hometown Atlanta and went to former WBO heavyweight champion, Francesco Damiani instead. Not as exciting, but fine. Then, a few days before the fight was set to take place, Damiani was forced to withdraw due to an injury to his foot. Cooper was tapped to step in because he had a winning record, albeit against far less skilled fighters. He never really had a chance, so the fact that he made it seven rounds with Holyfield was the only thing that really wowed anyone about this fight. In fact, Cooper gave Holyfield the first knockdown of his career in the third round. Although there is sort of an asterisk next to it, as Holyfield never actually hit the canvas. While the fight ended predictably in Holyfield's favor, fans were entertained and, for the most part, satisfied with the carnage they witnessed. With that, our collective focus shifted to turkey and dressing, time with family, the Cowboys beating the Steelers 20-10, to and the star-studded Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, which I'll talk about next week. But that's pretty much all I've got for you today, friends. I do hope you'll join me again next week for more post-Thanksgiving 1991 nostalgia. We're finally getting back into my favorite time of the year. Until then, just know, this is yet another example of the late neoclassic Baroque period. And as I always say, if it's not Baroque, don't fix it. 30 Pop is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Bronner. Our artwork is by the amazing Heather Hale. To check out more shows from Mill U Media Group, visit millumedia.com, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. And if you have a story from 30 years ago that you want to share, leave a message on the answering machine at 30pop.com. <laughs>